uh, I just mentioned this, but you've obviously, if you've been here before, you've heard me talk about this. Um, I grew up going to church. I don't know what your experience was, but I grew up going to church and uh, really since I was like negative nine months old. I've, I've been in church um, that long, so it's been a long time. Uh, grew up going to church, grew up going to a private Christian school. We went to you know, camps in the summer like VBS. We did Sunday school. I don't know if you guys remember Sunday school. Anybody remember Sunday school? What a terrible thing to call a church program, school. Like, kids already hate school enough. Why put those two things together? I, I never understood that, but we did those things. We went to Sunday school. We went to, to VBS things. We did youth and youth retreats, and um, <clears throat> all of the, the people who would teach these things uh, would come in, and they would usually bring in props for illustrations. I don't use a lot of props, but they would bring some in, and some were good, and some were really creepy. I showed you guys a picture of that guy, Salty, that blue song, but that was kind of creepy, or scary puppets. Uh, sometimes they bring in flannel graphs, which are just kind of boring, but they'd always bring in these props. Some were good and some weren't good. Some were memorable. Some, you know, you, you really chose to forget. But I remember uh, once in a, a youth event, I don't remember exactly who was speaking, but I remember the illustration. It just kind of burned and was ingrained in, in my mind, and it had to do with a rope, with a long length of rope. And the guy who was doing the illustration was talking about life, about the afterlife, about really what we've been talking about. He said, here's what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine that this red portion of the rope is our current life. It's, it's our life. It's, it's what's happening right now. This is current. And then all of this is the afterlife. And that just kind of stuck with me. And I, I don't know exactly why it stuck with me. I mean, it was an interesting illustration, but I, I think what it stuck with me was, I don't know about you, but the afterlife to me is, is a little mysterious. And if I'm being honest, it's a little bit scary because I, we don't exactly know everything that's out there. We don't exactly know what's waiting for us. That's why people write books and they make movies and, you know, some people even sing about it. But, but it's, it, it was kind of scary. Like, this is it. This is what we have. And then all of this is what's to come and it's what's after. And if I'm being completely honest, it, as a, a child, it, it kind of rattled me a little bit. It, it made me a little, a little nervous because this is a long time. And, and something that goes on forever that we can't kind of wrap our mind around, it, it, it's a little troublesome, isn't it? I mean, even as an adult, you know, you'd think when you, you know, when you get older, you can wrap your head around it. I want to say I'm, I'm older and I'm smarter and logical and I can wrap my head around it. Can you comprehend forever? Can you comprehend infinity? It just keeps like, no. And when you do, you get a, a migraine, right? It, it's hard. It's confusing. And, and, if, and, and just like kind of wrapping your head around that logically, if that's not confusing enough, when we think about that with our life, that we have this much of, of our life, however long you've been here, however long you're going to be here, that, that's that. And then this is all that follows afterwards. It's, it's a little troublesome, if we're honest. It's, it's a little bit confusing. What's next? All of this white portion. That leaves us a lot to consider. That some of us, you know, we may have been here for 30 years, or you may, like me, a little over 40 years. Maybe you're coming into the, the latter season of your life, and it's 60 years. 60 years. I don't want to throw numbers out and offend anyone, but some people are even older. And that's what we have. But all of this goes on forever. What's that going to be like? As a Christian, we believe there's, there's the afterlife. We believe that there's, there's something better in store for us. There's something after this life. But, but I don't know if, if you know this. Christians aren't the only people that believe this. Now, I grew up thinking that this is what Christians believe, and everyone else, you just kind of believe something different, and that didn't really matter. But every civilization... 
Every civilization has, has thoughts or has a, a plan or, or some kind of religious connotation for what comes after this life. They, they all have, have something that focuses on what comes after this life. Every civilization believes there's, there's something after it. And, and how we get there, we, you know, that's where we kind of uh, break our, our alignment, if you will. So if you've wondered about the afterlife, you're in good company. And if, if you thought like a lot of these other religions do, that, that what we do here, kind of what we do in the current life, how we live today, how it, it affects our tomorrow, so that you know, we can do something to make God love us more now or, or to make our tomorrow better, our tomorrow tomorrow's better, that, that what, how we live right now affects what happens in the afterlife. And if that's how you feel, the truth is you're in good company because lots of people feel that way. Every religion believes that way. That how I behave today affects my experience tomorrow or affects my experience in the afterlife to come. Not just tomorrow, but the afterlife as well. And the afterlife, like the Energizer Bunny, just keeps going and going and going. See, but Christians, we, we think a little differently about that. Every other non-Christian religion has this, this connection between how we behave today and how it affects us tomorrow. Every non-Christian religion gives a lot of afterlife attention to our present life behavior. That how whatever we do now is going to affect your afterlife. So we can, we can do things now and we should do things now that to, to benefit or to affect how we live tomorrow and how we live in the afterlife. What we do today will ultimately affect how God feels about us. Or at least that's how people think. See, but not in Christianity. In Christianity, we, we feel a, a little differently. In Christianity, we, we, there's this, this connection between our, our faith and our behavior, but not the same way. It's almost a, a little bit flipped in, in Christian circles. You see, every other religion, they, they connect these dots. And, and people have done these things in other religions that we look on from the outside, and this may sound uh, awful to hear, but I think it needs to be said. We look in it from the outside, and we say, how could you do these horrific things? But they do these things in the name of their religion with, with clean minds and, and, and pure hearts, as if they're serving their God, that if I do this now, I'll be rewarded in the afterlife to come. And it makes no sense to us. See, but not with Christians. Christians see it differently. Christians, actually, we see it as kind of the opposite life. This present life, it's different. Because we didn't do anything to earn God's affection. As a matter of fact, the gospel says it this way, that God loved us so much that Jesus came. And Jesus died and paid for our sins. And Jesus was resurrected to, to overcome death so that you and I would one day be able to overcome death and have an afterlife, an everlasting life with him. That's, that's like the gospel message. We didn't do anything. It was done for us, proving that God could overcome death and that we would have an afterlife in the future. You see, we don't believe this because somebody told us so. We don't believe this because of, of something we read or something somebody said to us. We believe this because of all of the evidence that was given. We believe this because of people like Matthew and Mark and John and, and Peter. They, they were eyewitness accounts to these uh, amazing things, these radical things, things that they didn't really even want to believe. But when they saw them, they couldn't deny it. And, and they, would, they believed it so much, they would actually walk to their own death, their own execution, believing these things because the evidence was just so completely overwhelming. We believe it because of people like Luke. 
Luke, who, who, who wrote a letter, he actually interviewed every eyewitness he could, every person who was around who saw Jesus and heard Jesus speak. The evidence was just so overwhelming that Luke wrote everything down, and it then became a book in our Bible. And he actually c- converted. He put his faith in a resurrected Savior he never met because the evidence was so completely overwhelming. It didn't have a lot to do with, with the behavior. It had a lot to do with, with the belief. I, I believe in what this guy did, even though I never met him, because the evidence was so overwhelming. We believe because of people like Paul, Paul who hated Christians and who hated Christianity and spent the beginning part of his life doing everything he could to end it. And then he encountered Jesus and his life changed. And we always say, of course it does, because you don't meet Jesus and stay the same. His life completely changed. Then he devoted the the latter part of his life in investing into the kingdom, starting church after church after church after church, giving his life for his faith, really being stoned and left for dead, being shipwrecked. He he was later arrested and imprisoned and then ultimately executed for his faith because he believed in something so real. See, the truth is, and and this is going to make some of you a little uncomfortable, but, but stick with me. We don't really even need faith to believe, do we? Because the evidence is so overwhelming. It's like if it was in a court of law to decide whether this was true or not, with all of the evidence that we have piled up, it's like it's a shoo-in. Of course, you have to admit it's real. There's so much evidence to it. We really don't need to have faith to believe that Jesus came and lived and died and rose again because the evidence is so overwhelming. But we do need faith to believe why he did what he did. And why he did what he did matters. We really don't need to have faith to believe that the gospel's true. But we do have to have faith to believe why it's true. See, it's not, it's not faith in God because of our behavior. It, we don't behave our way to a, a appeal to God as if somehow we can make God love us any more than he already does. He already did all that. It's faith to believe why he did all that. The Apostle Paul, he, he writes to the Christians at Ephesus, kind of explaining the, the, this, this idea of how we live in, in light of the afterlife, in, in light of, of having faith in a resurrected Savior and what he did for us. He writes this in Ephesians, and I thought this was beautiful. He says, for it is by grace, that's the free gift of God, nothing that you did to deserve it, nothing you can do to earn it, for it is by grace that you have been saved through your faith, not your behavior, Not the things that you keep doing week after week after week to try to earn God's affection and earn good grace to be in right standing with God. It's like, no, 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 that was already done for you. You didn't have to do anything for it. It was through faith that you believe and you receive that gift of salvation. I just have to believe that Jesus did what he did for me. And I'm made right with God. And then Paul goes on, he says, and this is not for yourselves as if you had anything to do with it. We had nothing to do with it. It is the free gift of God, not by works, again, not by behavior, so that any of you can boast. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do, and some of you may need to hear that this morning, to make God love you any less. He loves you just the way you are, and he loves you so much he was willing to give everything he had for. So if that's true, then, 
We, we take this whole idea and we, we apply th- this idea that there's, there's nothing I can do to make God love me more. I don't have to kind of behave my way into good graces with God. I don't have to kind of work my way into this, this afterlife scenario where I get the good thing and not the bad thing. And if, not, if, the, if it's true that I don't have to worry about that, I just have to believe in God. And, and through my faith in Jesus and what he did for me, I received grace and, and eternal life was given to me. Then what do we do in the meantime? Right? Like, what do we do between now and heaven? If that's the case, what do we do? Jesus had this incredible conversation about the afterlife. It's really, he, he, he gives us this, this, this saying that has become the most famous verse in all of Scripture. John recorded it for us. We'll read it together, and you'll all be able to read it with me, because whether you've been in church or you haven't been in church, you know the Scripture. But what you might not know is that this was all part of a conversation about the afterlife. Somebody was asking Jesus. He was asked oftentimes, Jesus, what do we do? How do I live today to help me get into, in, into heaven? How do I live today to kind of get God's favor? How do I live to kind of get God on my side or get God for me? How do I live so that God's kind of indebted to me? I've done good things. Now God owes me this. How do I live in that kind of a way, Jesus? Jesus responds with this. You can say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave the most precious thing he had, his only son, that whoever believes, whether you're like me and you were kind of raised in church from negative nine months old and, and now I'm you know, into my 40s, I don't want to tell you how old I am, but I'm older. Or for you who maybe have come to church for the very first time. Maybe it's, it's you and you're watching online because you're not even sure you can go to church without like, I hear this all the time, lightning striking or the building burning down. For whoever would believe in him, would not perish, but would have the gift of everlasting, eternal life in heaven. You don't have to behave your way in. He said you just have to believe your way in. Just believe. Believe my story that I was sent from God for you, that I paid the debt that you couldn't pay, and that I overcame death so that you would one day overcome as well. The journey, we say it this way. We kind of wrapped some um, a phrasing around it just to make it easier for us. So you've heard us say this before. God loved who? You. He loved you so much that he gave it's the most precious thing he had. And we believe in what he did and in why he did it. Therefore, we receive. God gave or God loved, so God gave and we believe, so we receive the grace from God, the gift of eternal life. You see, for Christians, our religion, our faith, for Jesus followers, our religion is a relationship that's built on faith that informs our behavior. It's not a relationship built on, on behavior that somehow speaks into our faith. No, it, it's the opposite for Christians. We, we believe, and because we believe, it changes the way we behave. We're not saved by our works, but we're saved. And because we're saved and because of our our faith in Jesus and what he did for us, it produces in us the desire to do something different, to behave a little differently. Christians don't believe we behave our way to God. Nothing can make that happen. We have faith in Jesus. And once we put our faith in Jesus, the scriptures say we are a, a new person, a new creation. That old slate, all the stuff you've done, you know, you, you often talk about, I have this, you know, my track record, wiped clean, deleted, 
Like control off delete for good. Not like in the trash can to come back. Trash can's been emptied. Can't bring it back. Your slate's been wiped clean. You're a new creation. Everything's been made new. And then I meet Christians, and you perhaps meet Christians, who, who walk around and, and we, we use this phrase. And if you're a Christian, if you're a, a Jesus follower, we need to be careful how often we use this because I think sometimes we distort it. We say things like this, well, I, I, I go to church for God. And, and, and I, I serve on a Sunday morning for God. And I, I, I put money you know, in the giving box or I even, I'll even go online and do the thing that Jim talked about doing and I'll give that gift for God. I'll become a missionary for God. And, and I don't believe that, that the heart is wrong. I, from the, really, with all sincerity, I believe the people who say this have sincere hearts and really believe that somewhere they're doing all of this for God. They're, they're serving for God. They're being generous for God. and They're, they're, they're giving for God. But I think if we're not careful, we kind of distort and almost undermine the essence of Christianity. That, that's, that somehow we kind of, by saying this, it's like, well, I have to do these things for God because if I do that, God loves me more. And then my salvation's secure and, and, and the gift of grace is secure. It's like, no, 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 that's already secure. That's been done. That was done with Jesus. It's secure for you. But then why do we keep saying we have to do all of this for God? I mean, when you look at the scriptures, there's a great example of this, right? The Apostle Paul. Like, look at all, if, if there's anybody in the scriptures who can say, look what I've done for God, it's him, right? I mean, we just went through his track record. He, he didn't believe in Jesus. He tried to destroy Christianity. Then he believed, and then he spent the rest, he literally gave the rest of his life, poured out his life, like planting churches and bringing the gospel to places that, that it, it wasn't like cool to bring the gospel to, right? They would chase you out of town with stones. And, and like, if anybody could say, hey, I've done all of this for God, it could have been Paul. But he doesn't see it that way. As a matter of fact, we're going to dive into this, this conversation that, that Paul has with us uh, about how he actually sees it very differently. In, in Romans, in, in the book of Romans, he actually addresses th this idea, and then we're going to jump into another scripture. He says, what then shall we say in response to these things? What, what, what could I say about the uh, all these things that are kind of happening around us and all the things people are saying and all the other religions that are speaking into this, and it's about how we behave and how we behave and, and what we do for God? He said, no, no, see, not, not in this way. It's different. What can I say about these kinds of things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul's saying, you see, it's different. God is already for you. You don't have to do anything to make God for you. He's already for you. He's, he's actually so for you that he gave everything he had for you. We don't have to behave our way to God to somehow make him love us more. We believe our way to God through, through Jesus and what Jesus did. So then if we take all of this and we apply it to the conversation we've been having about heaven, what does that look like? When we take this idea and we wrap it around this, this conversation of the afterlife, then what do we do? If, if God's for us, if I don't have to do anything to, to work for God, if I don't have to do anything kind of earn his affection, then what do I do with this remaining red time I have left? Like the, the white, there's a lot. But what do I do with this? How do I live? What do I do? See, the thing we have to wrap our mind around is we don't have to do anything for God because God already did everything for us. Our relationship with God is founded on our faith in Jesus, not on our behavior. So what do we do between then and now? 
Last week, if you missed the conversation, we talked about how earth is very much like heaven's waiting room. And we think about waiting rooms, right? They have the, the old dirty magazines that no one wants to read. They're like three years old and the news is old. Our waiting room looks a little different. We don't have old magazines. We have like pain and suffering and tears and heartache. So what do we do while we're in the waiting room of heaven? How do we live? We don't have to work for God. But in light of this, what do we do? See, I, I don't know about you, but I know my temptation when I think about my life here is, is I want to find purpose. I need to find purpose in the waiting. I need to find, okay, well, if I have this much time left, then there needs to be some purpose. I can't wake up every day and live aimlessly. So what's the purpose in, in the waiting? How do I find that kind of a purpose? Our earthly temptation is, and I think everyone kind of fits into this, our earthly temptation is to try to find meaning in this life from this life. Have you ever noticed that? We try to find meaning in this life from this life, whether it's, you know, we find, we find purpose in our careers, we find purpose in our relationship or in our, our wealth or our status or our success. We, we try to find purpose for this life in this life. And then the problem is these things are fragile, these things are temporary, these things are already broken. And when they begin to crumble, so does our life and so does our, our hope. Jesus was having this conversation with, with, with somebody who was kind of asking these same things. It was like they were so close to understanding and, and, and to, to living the way that God wanted us to live. Jesus has this conversation. He said, but you're just missing it. If you, if you would just, just don't store up treasures for yourself. He says it this way. Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where malls and vermin destroy and where thieves can break in and steal. Don't store up treasures here. Don't make your life about just this life. What about all the white that's after the red part of that rope? He says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin cannot destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. Store up treasures there. See, it's not about the behavior, but there is this idea that while we have time, what we do here matters. Because as Christians, we believe that the afterlife matters, that there's something better after this life. So what do we do? Maybe we can learn from Paul. Paul set a great example of this. When we look at Paul's life, with, with how he lived, Paul dedicated the rest of his life. Paul dedicated the rest of his earthly life to the afterlife. That there's this purpose, not just in, in, in what's to come, but in what I do right now, there's this purpose. And I don't do these things to, to kind of earn God's affection for God. I do them because my life needs purpose. That's why he wrote it to the uh, Christians in Philippi. He, he writes them this, this passage, and, and at this point in time, there's this, this kind of conflict coming in the church. These are new Christians at a new church he started in the city of Philippi, and, and he kind of writes them, and, and here's the context. There's this group of people that are hearing some of the things that happened with Jesus and that Paul's writing, and they kind of step in and they think, oh, this new thing that, that Paul's talking about, that guy Jesus did, that's a really good idea. Maybe we can just kind of sandwich that and kind of mash that in with Judaism. It's like Judaism 2.0. They call these people the Judaizers. They literally tried to Judaize Christianity. They tried to say, let's just, let's just mix them together. Let's mash them up. And Paul's like, no, that, that, that's not how it works. Because this isn't Judaism 2.0. God did something completely brand new. They're separate. They don't, they don't go together. You can't mix them together. They kind of repel each other. It, it's something brand new. The old way is done. This is the new way. God fulfilled the new way in this new thing, in, in this, this Christianity. that They actually called it the way. That's what it was called when it first started. You can't put them together. 
So Paul writes to these people who are seeing the conflict of trying to live a life of behavior and behaving our way to God and living a life of faith where we just believe that Jesus did what he did. And now that we do, what do we do with our lives? Paul says, it's true that some of these people that are coming to you and taking this word and kind of mixing it up and mashing it together, that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. And what are those things? Those are really selfish things, aren't they? But others out of goodwill. He says, so we kind of have this mix. We have these people who are coming and, and, and they're preaching and they're doing it kind of selfishly. And he said, that's not great. But then we have these other people who are doing it and, and they're doing it out of love and good. So we have people who are doing it wrong and people who are doing it right. He said, the latter, they do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former, he says, the people who are doing it the wrong, the former preach out of selfish ambition. And that's a really important word. That selfish ambition not sincerely. It, it, you remember what we talked about, how, how we live this life trying to find fulfillment for this life in this life. That's exactly what these people were doing. They're, they're preaching and they're trying to find fulfillment in their own words. Supposing, he says, that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. They were, they were trying to find meaning in their own preaching. They were trying to find purpose to their life in their own preaching. They were preaching selfishly. And Paul says, even though they're doing it the wrong way, even though they're preaching selfishly, which I would prefer they not do. And the truth is, we all have a tendency to do this, don't we? We all have this kind of tendency to live this life focused on this life. And that's exactly what these men were doing. It's about me or it's about my status. It's about how my celebrity, how well people know me. We all have a tendency to live our life that way. Paul said, but even though they're doing that, even though they're living their life focused on this life, and that's not the way I want it to be done, he says this. He says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, the good way, the right way, and the wrong way, whether they have false motives or true, Christ, not Chris. I know you did the notes, but that's, I mean. <clears throat> Jesus Christ is preached. Whether good motives or bad motives, Paul said, I, I, I can actually rejoice in this. Because of this, I rejoice. Jesus is being preached. Whether it's being preached the right way or the wrong way, he's still being preached. And he said, and I'm not even done rejoicing. He goes on. <clears throat> he says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. But he says that not referring to this life. Because as he's writing this, he's in prison, and he's facing down his ultimate execution. Things don't change for Paul in this life. So what does he mean? He says, I, I eagerly expect and I hope that I will in no way be ashamed. Well, what's he talking about there? He's about to be put on trial, and his, his accusers are going to look him in the eye and say, Paul, do you recant Jesus? You're here because of your faith in this guy, Jesus, and what he did. Will you recant your faith? Will you refuse to continue to, to preach the gospel of Jesus? And Paul said, I know what's coming for me, and I know I can't do that. See, all you have to do is say, yes, I recant, and all of this goes away, and you can go back to your life and make tents and travel, whatever you want to do. Just say you recant. And Paul says, I, I pray that I will in no way be ashamed. 
for what's about to come. I want to believe, and I want to believe up until the point of giving my own life for Jesus. I pray that it will be, I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. The, the red part, whether by life or by death. I pray that whatever happens, whether I ultimately face execution and die, or, or I, I get the, the opportunity to live, that Jesus will be exalted. And then he says, for me, to live is, and before we jump into that, because some of you already know where it's going, I just want to stop for a moment and ask you, how would you fill that in? For me, to live is, you fill in the blank. See, I think the temptation, again, for us is, is to find fulfillment in this life from this life. So for me, it would be, for me to live as well, quite honestly, it's gain. I want to live. For me, life is kind of wrapped up and wrapped around the idea of, of my status and my career and my success. Or perhaps it's around relationships or marriage. I hear people say all the time, I just, I just need to get married and then I'll be happy. And then they get married, and what do they say? Well, I just need to have kids, and things will get better. And we wrap our identity, we wrap our life around portions of this life that never truly bring happiness and satisfaction. How does Paul say it? He said, for me, to live is Jesus Christ. And to die is gain. That's powerful. For me, if I'm to live, I'm going to live to the glory of Jesus. And I'll thank him for every day I get. But if I die, it's even better. He says, if I am, he continues, I'm going to live in this body. This will mean fruitful labor for me. I'll continue to do what I feel I need to be doing in this life. Yet, what shall I choose? I mean, he uses emotion here. I don't know. I'm torn. What do I do? I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. I, I desire almost to die just so I can be in heaven because heaven is so much better than this life. Because as we've been saying for the past few weeks, you weren't made for this. You were made for something more. You're homesick for heaven. Paul said, I know where my home is and I can't wait to go back. So I'm torn because I know that's awesome. But, he says, but it is more necessary for who? For you, that I remain in the body. Heaven is, is desirable. Paul said, I can't wait to go. No more pain, no more hurt, no more tears, no more strife. But my life has purpose. And while I breathe and while I live and, and, and while I'm, I'm alive today, I have purpose, but here's the kicker, not for God, but for you. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing for your sake, not for God's. God and I are good. God did everything he was going to do already for me, and I believe in that, so we're good. But while I'm here, what I do, I'm doing for you. It's a completely different way of looking at it, isn't it? Convinced of this, 
I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress. Again, it's about others and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you, again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Paul had faith in Jesus. And he spent the rest of his life working, but not for God, for all of those other people around him. Because Paul knew God and I are good, but God loves others. Therefore, I love others, and I'll work for them. At the beginning of this, we said Paul dedicated his life to the afterlife, right? I think that's a true statement, but I think it's an incomplete statement. I think we need to dive in a little deeper because the truth is, I think Paul actually dedicated his earthly life to your afterlife and to my afterlife and to every person who would read the letters he wrote to the countless Christians in Philippi and in Rome and in Corinth and in Colossae, all over the Mediterranean Rim. He dedicated his life to their afterlife and to my afterlife and to your afterlife. He said, I believe in God. And my faith is in Jesus. But while I'm alive, I'm going to work for you. And it cost him his life. See, Paul was for God. But he didn't need to do things for God. Because Paul knew that God was for others. So Paul would do everything for you. Paul didn't live his earthly life for God. Paul lived his earth life to ensure that others knew God was for them. Kind of begs the question, so what do we do? How do we live? It changes how we think about what we do, doesn't it? In, in Hebrews 11, this is the, the faith chapter. We call this right, the, the hall of faith. Like these, This chapter is just filled with all of these brilliant men who, who did amazing things like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Noah and how they, they, they lived this life that is just so radical that a whole chapter of the Bible is recorded just to going over their accounts. But what's amazing is in that chapter, God doesn't commend them for their behavior. He commends them for their Faith. They had radical faith. And they lived their life knowing God and I are good. God loves me. He's for me. But everything I do while I'm alive, I'll do for you. So what about us? Do we try to gain from this life only the things we can see and feel and gain in this life? Do we kind of get trapped in, in this, this whole idea of, of thinking, even for us Christians who, you know, we go to church and we follow Jesus, but I, I give because I'm giving for God, and I'm generous because I'm generous for God, and I serve because I'm serving for God, which I, I understand the sincerity of that heart. But what I really think it should be is I'm giving because I want you to know that God loves you and is for you. And I'm generous because God was so generous with me, I want you to experience God's generosity. And if I'm generous with you, and I can point you in the direction of God, and that's better for you. And I serve because Jesus came and served me. And I love him so much. I want you to experience that grace and that mercy. So I'll serve, hoping that all of my, your attention 
it's pointed back to the one who served me. See, I don't do these things for God. I do these things for you so that God will get the attention and God will get the glory. So when I give, I'm giving for the benefit of others. And when I serve, I'm serving for the benefit of others. When I help meet the needs, I'm helping meet not just your physical needs, but I want to help meet your spiritual needs too. Because that is what will change your life forever. I can give you a meal and you'll be hungry again in a few hours. But I can help you meet Jesus, who said, when you drink what I'm offering, you'll never go thirsty again. That's why we share our faith. Why share it for God? No, I'm sharing it for you. God's good. But you need God. So I'm going to ask you a question, and I think it's a powerful question that we're, we might even breeze over, but I think you need to ponder it. I think you need to sit on it. I think you need to think about it. In, in light of all of this, what would change in your life? What would have to change if the afterlife became the focus of your current life? What in your life would change? And I don't expect you to have answers now, but think about that for a minute. Maybe take a picture of that question and come back to it during the week. What would change? What would change if the afterlife, if all of this white became the focus of this little amount of red? How would that change your life? My guess is, if we're really honest with ourselves, maybe some things, maybe a few things, maybe everything. Paul dedicated his life to the afterlife of you and of me and of everyone else. What are we going to do? C.S. Lewis is one of the most famous theologians who ever lived. <clears throat> he wrote something that I want to read with you, and then we'll close in prayer. He wrote something that I think is so powerful. It's almost like he's looking at, at his generation, at his world, and at people who are trying to live in a way that, that evokes change, that, that, that I'm doing these things for other people because I want people to be better. I want, I want to please God, and they're, just, they're not getting any traction. It's like they're, they're trying and they're trying, but nothing seems to be changing. And it's almost like he sat back from his chair and he's observing the world before him. And then he writes this incredibly beautiful and incredibly powerful statement. He says this. He says, if you read history you'll find that Christians who did the most in the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, they all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. Here's where it gets hard. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Then he says this. I love this line. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with the little red you have? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this incredible passage of Scripture, Lord, from the Apostle Paul, who clearly, Lord, lived his life in such a way that was so radically different than, than anyone else, God, before him except for Jesus. God, who, who just poured his life out, not 
not even for your sake, Lord, but for ours, so that we would know, so that we would experience the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God. God, this question just keeps ringing in, in, in my heart, Lord. What would change in my life if I lived every day like the afterlife mattered more? God, I pray that you would cause that question to be stuck in our conscience until we have an answer for it. God, maybe answers for it. Would you give us the courage, God, to face that, that reality, that question, and the wisdom to, to know, Lord, what in our life needs to change? Do we spend every day focused on this life, or do we spend every day thinking about and focusing on the life to come? God, I pray that we would take the advice of C.S. Lewis, Lord. We would aim at heaven. God, an earth would be thrown in as well. I thank you for every person listening to this, God, and I pray that it would cause us to take a step closer to you in your direction and to become a little bit more like your son, Jesus. In his name I pray, amen.